I feel very honored and humbled to be speaking with Patrick McEwen, who is recognized as a foremost authority in breathing for performance and sleep. He is a fellow of the Royal Society of Biology, and his work has been circulated in international medical journals by leading literary publishers. And he is the founder of Oxygen Advantage, which we'll talk about today. And Patrick has helped tens of thousands of people worldwide who experience breathing pattern disorders, sleep disordered breathing and anxiety. He has trained over 400 breathing instructors across 45 countries. And I'm putting my hand up to be one of those very soon. His mission is to empower people to take control of their own health well-being and fitness using simple breathing exercises proven to improve body oxygenation. He is the best-selling author of 10 books. The Oxygen Advantage is an Amazon bestseller translated into 14 languages. And I've just finished reading Patrick's latest book, which I absolutely love the atomic forces and you can see I've got loads of parts on many pages because I couldn't put it down and I it, for me it was a true page turner and I'll I'll definitely ask you a lot of questions because today most of us have been affected by stress on some level by the global pandemic and I believe it's how we cope with stress that really matters and I know, Patrick, you will have lots of wonderful tips for coping with this current pandemic. And um, on that note, I'd like to say welcome to Wellness Spring. Thanks very much, Beverly. Good to be here. Thank you. You must be so super excited to have just released your 10th book. Revolutionize your... Yes, it's... Um... Yeah, it's, I liked this book. Um, I thought the information was very applicable. It would have been information that I would have liked to have got when I was about 20 years of age or even 15 or 16. I, it would have been information. It's information that has helped me a lot over the last 20 years. And I know if I was in school and university and understanding how to improve my concentration and attention span, it, it would have really helped me a lot. I just feel that, you know, we're sending a lot of kids to school and uh, they're spending four, 16 years in formal education. It's demanded that they are able to concentrate and hold their attention, but nobody's teaching them how. And let's face it, modern society with the advent of social media and text messaging and everything that's going on around it has created a society of distraction. And for any quality of work to take place it really needs that we have to be able to place our attention on that work for a period of time without distraction and without distraction externally so for example meetings and interruptions that people are having in the workplace email disruptions all of the notifications and without distractions internally in terms of a racing mind if we can clutter if we can clear out the clutter external and internal distractions we can produce wonderful work and i've even seen it in my own because 
you know, I have a small service here and you can literally be, you know, from one end of the morning, from one end of the day to the other, um, that there's so much. And this has really changed in the last 20 years. So it really does come back down to one thing. What is focus, but narrowing your attention on one thing. And it's also including setting goals, goals that are not too high, that scare the life out of you, but not too low either that don't motivate you. So it's getting that that happy medium. And that's all, all going to depend on the person. And then our concentration is our ability to hold our attention on that one thing. So having undivided attention, almost that the person and the task become one. And the attention span is the length of time that we can hold our attention on one thing. Society demands that we have focus, concentration and attention span because we are not successful without these traits. But nobody is teaching us how. And, you know, it really comes down to if I was to say, what is the hierarchy of needs and a revised hierarchy of needs? Because, of course, Maslow's motivational theory back in the day was fine for food, clothing and shelter. Really, we need in today's modern society to achieve self-actualization, which is reaching our full potential. Because when you reach your full potential, there's a tremendous feeling of gratification. There's a tremendous feeling of empowerment or reward. It's wonderful. And, you know, knowing that you've given it your best shot, it's, it's absolutely a tremendous place to be. But how do you get to that point? You have to have the foundation right. And the foundation is deep sleep. And I'm not talking about, you know, wear blue light filter glasses going before bed and don't expose yourself to blue light and all of that stuff, which is fine. But I'm talking about nasal breathing during sleep, waking up in a moist mouth in the morning and functional breathing patterns. Because if, for example, we were in a state of faster and upper chest breathing and mouth breathing, as I was for many years, you're constantly in that hyper arousal overstimulation. And then we bring in breath aware, body aware, mind aware to achieve self-actualization. So, you know, in terms of the whole awareness aspect of it, people have delved quickly into mind awareness, but they haven't really questioned what's their sleep quality. You can do all the mindfulness in the world. If you're waking up with a lousy sleep, you're not going to be mindful anyway. If you have dysfunctional breathing patterns, and look at the stats on it. 75% of the anxiety and panic disorder population have dysfunctional breathing. 75%. They're not going to achieve flow states. People with asthma are very tired because of their sleep is disrupted due to their breathing difficulties. People with rhinitis, the stuffy nose, are two to three times more likely to have sleep issues. 50% of the population with lower back pain have dysfunctional breathing. And about 20% of the normal population. So achieving flow state for that state of mind where we are in relaxation and alertness at the same time is only available to a coveted few unless sleep and breathing and awareness um, plays a role. I totally agree with you and you covered a lot there. Um, before we go any further, would you like to tell the audience a bit about your background because you mentioned you wish you'd had this information 20 years ago, you know, where you grew up, what life was like. And I know that you were an asthma sufferer as well. Yeah. You know, it's in primary school, I was pretty bright kid. 
I was very much up at the top of the class. And when I went into high school at the age of 11 years of age, I went from the top of the class down to the bottom of the class. And I was falling asleep in school. And my school teachers, I remember on one occasion, he told me I'd be better off out picking potatoes in the field. <laughs> um, but um, at 14 years of age, I left school altogether, never to go back. Wow. And my intent was to, I was working in a, in a shop at the time. And my whole intent was to be involved with the shop supermarket industry and become a shop manager. That's what I was training to do from the age of 14 and eventually have my own store. So that was my goal back then. And I was working part-time in that shop since I was 11 years of age. Now, I know that might sound kind of strange now because I have an 11-year-old daughter and I couldn't imagine her doing what I was doing back then. But that's the way it was. Mm -hmm. So Ireland was a different place economically. And, uh, you know, you do whatever you, you, you need to do. But lo and behold, I went back to school at the age of 15. And I was pretty driven. And I set a goal to get into the best university that I considered in Ireland, which is a university in Dublin called Trinity College Dublin. Oh, yeah. And I worked hard to get into it. And I mean, I worked 10, 12 hours a day because I had sleep disorder breathing and chronic open mouth breathing, dreadful concentration. And I would have my attention on the page, but my I would have my eyes looking on, the, on that page, but my attention wasn't on the page. So I wasn't. I wasn't gathering the information. So for me to for me to really not just understand, but remember the material and to be able to regurgitate it for exams, it took a lot of work. I got my points. I got into um, university, did my degree. And then I was in the corporate world, which I absolutely hated. I hated the stress involved with it. I hated the pressure. I was in middle management. I had a team of about four or five people underneath me. Um, a lot of, lot of stress. Um, I hated going in of a Monday morning. I had a company car. I had all the trims and everything that goes with it, but I didn't enjoy it. I came across a newspaper article in 1997 about the importance of nose breathing and light breathing. I put it into practice and my night's sleep improved the mental sleep. My state of mind improved as well. And over a period of time, it's with continuous practice that made a huge difference. So I decided to leave the corporate world altogether and to teach this. And that's what I started doing in 2002, mainly for people with asthma, then for people with asthma. And we branched out to sleep disorders and then into anxiety and panic disorders. And then I brought together mindfulness and functional breathing. And then I figured that many men didn't want to attend breathing and mindfulness so I said set up the oxygen advantage because this was a high performance breathing technique to stress and to relax the body and mind for recovery etc and we achieved our goal because I was able to impart the exact same traits that you would impart to bring a calmness to the mind and a stillness to the mind and let's face it even the book Atomic Focus that's very much aimed at improving performance and mental performance. I use that information. You know, that's how we've been, I've been able to write the books that I've written because I have to manage my time the way that I describe it in the book. But I also have to manage the internal distractions and to be able to hold my attention and where I want to hold it upon. And you do come up with creative 
and intuitive insights, which are very, very helpful because this stuff has all been out there and it's been out there for decades and you could even argue for hundreds and thousands of years. But joining the dots is the key thing. So, you know, it's something that I've been very fortunate. I've, I've, I've got a work that I absolutely love doing. And we're now currently writing a new book. So that's what I was, I was coming up with ideas just before our conversation this morning. Yeah. And bringing functional breathing patterns and also the application of different breathing techniques. So we work, for example, some of our instructors are special weapons and tactics. Some are professional athletes across many, many different sports. Um, we have Navy SEALs instructors. So I, for example, will be, I've been working with elite military and I'm working to train some pilots as well in different Air Force bases in the, in the coming months. And also in the corporate audience, because it really comes down to this. If you have a distracted mind and if you have a lot of thought activity going through your head, your stress levels are going to be higher. Your anxiety is going to be higher. And I was that way back in 1997, 98, 99, into the early 90s. And of course, when I was practicing it, it was making a huge difference to me. Um, I suppose the worst time was really up until 1997, because it was 1997, 98 that I came across nose breathing. And it was, it was totally transformative to me. Um, but it comes, it goes as far as this. We demand, society demands people can hold their attention in order to be productive. But who is teaching them how, you know? It's not taught in schools. To achieve academically, you need to be able to hold your attention on what you're doing. The school kid needs to be able to focus. They need to be able to narrow their attention. They need to be able to hold their attention there for a period of time. Education doesn't teach us how to concentrate, but in order for us to excel in education, we need to be able to concentrate. The corporate world doesn't give employees the tools how to concentrate. Forget about mindfulness for the moment, because mindfulness is not going to work for the very person who needs it the most. And I don't say that without substance. I've worked with thousands of individuals with anxiety, with panic disorder. They're coming into me. They're breathing fast. They're breathing up our chest. I asked them. I've asked them many, many over the years. I'm teaching this almost 20 years now, 19 years. And I've asked them, have you practiced meditation? Have you done mindfulness? And yes, the answer for some is yes, they have. Do you still do it? No, they don't. Now, here's a group that need it the most, but yet they find it most challenging. And the reason being is because their central nervous system is in a state of fight or flight. We need to bring a balance in the autonomic nervous system. We can do that by changing breathing patterns. And breathing patterns and improving sleep is the quickest gateway to help bring a calmness to the mind. And by bringing a calmness to the mind, we are reducing stress. We are making ourselves more resilient because we have a better balance. We're able to go from a stress response into recovery and back into a stress response at will. We have also got the concentration and alertness and focus to be able to be productive, which in turn reduces stress. But also, it's not just about putting this out for the benefits of improved performance, but it's also about the benefits of happiness. Because the more agitated the mind, the less happy we are. So atomic focus is really about getting it out to the alpha person, the male and female who, were, who was driven. Because 
this group of people won't admit if they have a racing mind. This group of people won't admit if they have anxiety because society has put too much pressure on them to perform. And the alpha male walking out of the bookstore with a book on anxiety is not going to happen. But that alpha male will read the book about improving performance of the mind. But using the same traits to improve performance of the mind, we can also use those traits to assist with reducing panic disorder, anxiety, and the risk of depression. And that's my take on it. You know, the information is the same. Whether I was writing a book on anxiety or mm. high performance, the information was the same, but it's how it's delivered is very important. I totally agree with everything that you said. And I've been teaching various forms of breathing for many years. And as a psych nurse, and I'm a psych K practitioner and done loads of um, neurobiology of excellent courses. So I'm really fascinated by the mind and how people work. And like you, I've helped thousands of people over the years with panic attack. And when you're in a panic, panic attack, hyperventilate and there's no way you can say sit down calm your mind relax you know and um, you brought up a few good things about you know I've always said to people the schools teach you what to think and not how to think and my concern is at the moment you know um, you mentioned social media and that is a distraction and so many people especially the young children but I see that, you know, if they don't get likes on their Facebook, well, they don't use Facebook now, that's for the, us oldies. And, you know, they don't get them a like. TikTok. Um, yeah. So even the Dalai Lama said, um, one of the main causes of stress is our mobile phone and social media. Because before we'd go to bed and we'd, you know, switch off and relax and wake up in natural rhythm if we're able, but if you get up at the same time every day, chances are you wake up before your alarm, and then you'd have a shower, make your breakfast, go to work or go to school. But now people are on the phone before they go to bed, checking their likes, and then comparing themselves with friends. And you know, you get upset if they've had more likes and so forth and you wake it stimulates your brain activity so that's another two hours before you can go to sleep and then you're waking up feeling all stressed and then looking at it and um, I know that stress causes breathing pattern disorders as well and is one of the main triggers and also there's so many different stress related disorders that a lot of children get and like you mentioned asthma and I know you in on your website, you've written that um, there's over half a million people in Ireland where you're based with um, asthma and you approached the association there to help you with a campaign and they weren't interested. You know, mm -hmm. have you approached them since or what is your response? Do you get a lot of resistance to your teaching or? Are, you, are people, their mindsets have changed now? No, mindsets haven't changed. Um, I think this goes for anything that's going to yeah. be breathing related. You know, just the reality of it. I suppose I learned back in 2002 that in 2003 and four and five that people in the medical world and psychotherapy, Beverly, to be honest yeah. with you, they weren't interested in breathing. They didn't really want to know about it. 
Yeah. And as a result, what I did was I focused my attention on getting the information to the hands of the people. So that's why I started writing the books. And I didn't write the books to just give a little bit of information. I gave everything, everything that I knew I put into the books that a person didn't have to come near me at all because it was all in the books. And it's always been that way. Yeah. And the more I put the information out there, because there was a, there's a philosophy sometimes that if you have information, hold on to it because you can make money out of it. But my, over, my, my overriding goal was to generate awareness for breathing. It had made such a tremendous difference to my life. But I was working with students all the time and I was very busy. You know, I, luckily the media got behind me. So national broadcasters here were really tremendous. Um, RTE and all the different radio stations. I was getting interviews. I was getting full page articles in newspapers. You know, some of the journalists had asthma and that was lucky because wow. I remember one guy, Kevin Murphy, he wrote a page and a page and a half in a national newspaper on a few occasions and you couldn't pay for this, you know. So I was lucky. It, got, it was able to give me sufficient work that I could continue in the work. And that was very important. I was fairly frugal for the first few years. You know, we kept the costs to a minimum. I didn't have staff. I had one person assisting me maybe at different times. Now it's different. Now we've grown considerably. We've a thousand instructors, 50 wow. countries. We've got 12, 12 support staff. Um, you know, that's the way it is. Just I'm going to come back to a couple of points. Panic disorder. It's not necessarily the situation that puts the person into a panic attack. The problem is their breathing is dysfunctional very often. Um, and as I said, the statistic is that 75 to 80% of the panic disorder population have dysfunctional breathing from a biochemical point of view, from a biomechanical point of view, and also to look at their breathing from a resonance frequency point of view. So when somebody comes into me with panic disorder, we, we put them through the different exercises. Now I've put people into panic attacks from doing breathing exercise. So we go very gentle because some of them have a very strong aversion to the feeling of suffocation. And this is where I've made mistakes in the past because I don't suffer from panic disorder, touch wood. So I didn't quite understand that when we have them do reduced volume breathing or breath holding, that it would generate that feeling of air hunger, which we knew, but I didn't understand that their body would react so strongly to the feeling of suffocation. Now for panic disorder, I suppose most of your listeners would be aware that when somebody was having a panic attack, they were told to breathe in and out of a brown paper bag for a period of time. And that's to pool carbon dioxide, to bring it back into their lungs, to increase carbon dioxide in the blood, to increase blood flow and oxygen delivery to the brain. The problem is that their, their breathing was dysfunctional in the first instance. So let's improve their everyday breathing patterns so that when they are driving a car, when they do get into a difficult situation, that they don't go into that hyperventilation. And for all of us, we need to be able to control hyperventilation. And I often think about all of the people who are going to psychotherapy and doing cognitive behavioral therapy, which is wonderful. But they're going in with dysfunctional breathing and they're coming out with dysfunctional breathing. And I remember talking to somebody with depression going back, like, oh, of course, just but one woman stood out over the years. And I asked her, I said, how do you feel when you wake up in the morning? And she said she wakes up absolutely exhausted. And I said, has anybody asked you about your sleep quality? And she said, no. And the chances are that she could have undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea because insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea often go hand in hand. And when they go hand in hand, depression rates are quite high. So 
sometimes we have to be looking at joining the dots here and the interrelationship between breathing, sleep and the emotions. And this is where we often become tunnel vision as healthcare practitioners because we are focused on one very narrow realm, one niche. And I can be an app because I know nothing about nutrition, but where I focused was on sleep, breathing, and the emotions, those three things I focused on. And I know nothing about nutrition. So, you know, that's the way it goes. But I think it's important that we do realize of the bi-directional relationship here. And I would say one thing, we can never achieve a good quality state of mind unless we get our sleep right. And it's really, that's the key. Now, social media, I totally agree with everything you said. I actually think it's, it's they're psychopaths the people who invented this, this process, you know, can you imagine creating an industry whereby the whole, the whole goal and objective of this industry is to consume people's attention with nonsense. And ultimately that's, that's what it's about. Their overriding goal is to make sure that they can keep users on their platforms for as long as possible, because that is what's generating the money. Their companies are worth nothing only for the fact that users are spending millions and millions of hours. And as a result, they were able to use it as a, an advertising platform. I think it's sinister. I think it's dreadful. And I think they really have something to answer for mental health. And the guys who create this, you know, and if it was using, I wrote, wrote about it was, I took it from, I was listening to some guy, he wrote a, um, he did a kind of a podcast and this, toxicity of social media and mm. he said he said look at the founders of these he said they're they're recluses they're nerds you know and if you think of their personality traits can filter right through to the user and if it's true if a user spends enough time on social media they in turn are going to become recluses and nerds because of loss of social interaction and you go into a restaurant pre-covid days of course you'd see a family the father is looking into the mobile phone. The mom is looking into the mobile phone. The kids are looking into the mobile phone. Like, where is this getting to? And for people to realize that they are giving maybe an hour or two hours a day to these big platforms. Why would you give your time to such sinister organizations? They are no different than the tobacco industries of old. Totally agree. And, you know, there's a lot of things happening for children as well, um, is a really good relationship coach in Monaco, Gavin Sharp, and he's done lots of lectures about to watch children's behaviors and children get bullied at school and so forth. And a lot of children have turned to looking at porn on the mobile phones as well. And the list goes on. But yeah. going back to, um, the atomic focus and how you've written all your books and you said the alpha male would read about it in the book but he won't walk out with a book on anxiety and I, I find that the same if you if I advertise a breathwork class or breath meditation or anything like that I have to reword it you know about empowerment or something similar and then I get a full class so I was going to ask you because you've got so many instructors now and people coming to you, 
how would um, what advice would you give to them for starting up a business to be successful because you're very successful i never i never refused an opportunity um in terms of breathing i worked with everybody i spoke with at every time i could speak yeah. um i didn't do it for finance um i just did it because i love to do it and what happened was that i was able to develop a skill set but also i was able to learn from experience and i've made plenty of mistakes and this is what experience does and sometimes it's with the mistakes you know that you can really learn so number one was i always put myself out there now i was lucky for quite a while because i was always working 48 40 50 hours a week that i had more time now it's slightly different that I don't have because I can get consumed. And I think as well, this is coming back to even the, the number of emails that we were receiving in. Mm -hmm. And we have got, as I said, we've got people answering emails almost full time and I can't even get through my email box, you know? And so there's just an idea that something that's consuming our time. So sometimes I just have to absolutely ignore emails and that's what I do because if I answer them, I'm get, getting nothing done. I also think give out everything. Don't hold anything back. Um, you know, I remember doing a course 25 years ago or whatever, and the instructor was brilliant. And you do this mini course and at the mini course, they try and sell you to another course. And at that course, they sell you another course. And that's all nonsense. That doesn't appeal to me in any shape or form. You know, just whatever you have in front of you, just be do your best to think about what can you do to bring your person back, not in terms of asking them to um, to, you know, to be improving or going from level one, level two, level three or four. But just by the fact that you're really giving as much information as you can, that the person is getting good value and also leading them through the process, you know, Breathing has been often made overcomplicated and it's actually very, very simple. And also if, if an instructor keeps on learning and learning as much as they can, because then what happens is that they can tailor exercises according to different conditions. Long COVID is the next one. You know, yeah. here we have a situation of 10 to 30% of people who get COVID um, become what's called long haulers terrible name but um, basically they have symptoms that are persisting for months after the initial infection it's affecting mainly 20 year olds to 50 year olds and most of them are female many of these had very little symptoms during the infection but yes when i'm working um and seeing long covid these people are suffering from pots they can't stand up their autonomic nervous system is in such dysregulation and I feel comfortable working with long COVID because I've worked with people with chronic fatigue over the years and I've made mistakes. They've come into me with chronic fatigue. I've put them through exercises and I floored them. And I never, you know, again, I didn't back down with some people. I didn't take into consideration just how taxing on the, the nervous system anything can be. And that's why we have to go very gentle. So now we have a protocol that's totally different for long COVID. And this is what I would say to any instructors, you know, if you can find something that you love to do, you'll actually learn about it and you'll be willing to learn about it. And, 
you know, it's really, really rewarding. And it comes back to, I wanted to be successful from a young age. I never thought I would be teaching breathing. It was probably the, one of those things that, you know, if somebody was to say back in the noughties that you're going to be teaching breathing economically and people would be getting concerned because you might not be able to make a living from it. But I listened to my gut um, and I had a hunch that it was the right thing to do. And sometimes we have to follow that. And if actual fact, I would say, follow your gut instinct. It can really, really direct you to where to where it is. And also don't live your life stuck in your head. And as you said, like education is teaching us how to think. Well, education, as well as you didn't say education is teaching us how to think. You said education is teaching us what to what think, I think. What to what think, to think. And not how to. But the other thing is that even if it's not teaching us how to think, it sh education should be teaching us how to stop thinking. Exactly. You know, to have some control over the mind as well. So the education has totally fallen short. Um, and for people to realize this, realize that there are flaws in, in different systems, in education. There are flaws in how mental health is treated and how healthcare, there are many, many flaws. Um, and never be afraid to step up if you feel that there's something there that there's, there's a, you know, a void that you can step into. Um, I, I actually like the way that you do all the scientific back, background research and the way that you give so much information for free. A friend of mine, um, Martin Brothman, he did exactly the same for, he put everything in his book and he was even more successful. And yes. what I really, really like about your work, Patrick, is I, I don't know because you have a daughter or because you suffered with asthma as a child, but I like the way you give the free videos and workshops and talks for children between five and 16 on your website. And I was talking to a niece on the weekend, my partner's niece, and she was sick a year ago and ended up in hospital with something called, she, she had problems with her gut. Um, she kept losing weight. And eventually she ended up in hospital and they found out it, she's treated with something called a FOD diet, FOD map. It's something they've discovered in Australia. And um, she said to me, because I said to her, you know, about how breathing can improve so much. And she said, Beverly, it's like people talk about diets and health and well-being, but if they weren't doing it 50 years ago and they had the knowledge and a young 100 years ago, they'd had the knowledge, people are reluctant to change. You know, yes. people don't want to change. And we're living in a society that are, you know, a quick fix. So they would rather take a pill or a Ventolin inhaler than through the breathing exercises. And going back to your, um, so with the education, I was thinking maybe, I don't know how well it's received. I'm sure you're teaching the parents to help the children with the, the um, breathing exercises, because I think it's time now for a revolutionary change. You know, COVID has brought us to a standstill on many levels and getting us to look within. And I think maybe now people are ready because it's 
enabling us to take our health in our own hands instead of believing when I grew up doctors were like gods you know it's like what can I do to improve my health and even though my niece said that she said you know you need to get to the young children so um, children are our future we can't change the adults well only if they're willing to change but we could change the mindset now of the young children so wouldn't it be lovely if you could teach it and get all your instructors to teach it in schools yes it would but the system can be quite archaic and not all school teachers are going to realize the importance of it. Like, I'll give you a statistic. There was a, a study of 11,000 children carried out in Stratford-upon-Avon in the United Kingdom over five years. And it's published in the journal Pediatrics in 2012. Children with sleep disorder breathing, which included snoring, if untreated by age five, these kids have a 40% increased risk of special education needs by age eight. Wow. Mouth breathing is a contributory factor here. Now, you can imagine the economic and the social cost of this, because the reason being is that children's brains are is developing during deep sleep. But a child who is snoring is getting sleep fragmentation. Basically, they are not reaching the depth of sleep to which they should do. And it's impairing their brain development. These studies have been published. There's been nothing new about any of this. I've read, you know, an article that was published in a journal back in 1909 called The Dental Cosmos, and you'll find this online about mouth breathing. And the children in the class who are mouth breathing, as I was, they're inattentive, they're tired, their face, face is dull and expressionless. The teachers are accusing them of not paying attention. And yet, Beverly, 25 to 50% of studied children are mouth breathers. Mm. I feel for the kids. I feel that, you know, a child with a stuffy nose is, is completely overlooked. And that was the reason why we put the, the exercises out there. Um, it's, it's very, very important that children do get a chance and that, that cost is not pro prohibitive, you know, and the, the exercises are simple, like a nose and blocking exercise for a child. No side effects once the child doesn't, say, have epilepsy or serious medical conditions. If they do, they have to go easy. But for a child to unblock the nose, or an adult for that matter, but if the adult is doing that, they're not pregnant or no serious medical issues, take a normal breath in through the nose and out through the nose, pinch the nose, hold the nose, and walk around holding the breath. And keep walking while holding your breath. Just walk up and down the room while holding your breath until you feel a medium to strong air hunger and then let go, breathe in through your nose, breathe normally for about a minute, do it again, do it five or six times, your nose opens up. If you have your nose, if you're breathing through your nose all the time, your nose works better. Wear tape across your mouth at night. Now we use a different tape, we use myotape, but for children, we don't put tape across the lips, but we put tape around the mouth to bring the lips together because we want to ensure that nasal breathing during sleep and these are simple things. And I know you said that, you know, people don't have the time to do breathing exercise, but I understand they don't have the time to do breathing exercise. Like if you think of the pressure on, on people now, do an hour of physical exercise a day and do an hour of breathing a day, it's not going to happen. Whereas what I do is I do my breathing during my physical exercise. And I also realized that 
I have to have some attention on my on my breathing. And it's really, really very important in terms of managing stress and becoming resilient, but also having the energy to do what I need to do, you know. So if a person says to me, well, they don't have time to do a breathing exercise, well, oftentimes I'll say to them, listen, you don't have the time not to do this. Because if you are breathing the way you are breathing, your sleep is impacted, your focus, your concentration, your productivity is impacted. So I think it's very important for people to realize that, that the breath is something that we carry with us. And even just to think about this, you know, if we breathe fast during rest and during sleep, well, the brain is interpreting that the body is under threat. That's activating a fight or flight response. So how we breathe is telling the brain, is sending signals to the, the brain. And it's not the inhalation, it's the exhalation that's the key. During the inhalation, the vagus nerve steps back. And during the exhalation, is primarily under the control of the body's relaxation response to parasympathetic nervous system. If you have a fast exhalation, you're telling the, the body is telling the brain that there's a threat. If you have a slow and relaxed and prolonged exhalation, you stimulate the vagus nerve, which secretes the neurotransmitter acetylcholine, which causes a slowing of the heart. And the brain interprets that the body is safe. So anytime a person is in the workplace or they have an angry customer or whatever, place attention on the inhalation and have a really relaxed and a slow and a gentle exhalation. So no matter how you feel, just bring your attention onto your breathing. Nobody knows you're doing it. Always breathe in and out through your nose, but take a soft breath in through your nose and a really relaxed and a slow and gentle exhalation. And that will help to bring you into calmness. Now, I would say to people, start off. You don't have to learn a whole realm of breathing exercises to get some benefit out of it. There's two exercises there you could start using straight away. Yeah, that's really good. I know because... Um as you published everywhere, when you breathe through the mouth, you take in 20% less oxygen, it stimulates uh, sympathetic nerves. And obviously, when you breathe through the nose, you're, you're getting um, the air filtered and humidified. And also, it stimulates the production of nitric oxide. So would you like yes. to tell the audience the importance of harnessing nitric oxide? Yeah, let's, it, like when it comes to the mouth, if you were to open your mouth and look into your mouth, what functions does the mouth do for the breath? None, absolutely zero. So why are we breathing through it? The, the mouth was not designed for breathing, full stop. N not during physical exercise, not during rest and not during sleep. 50% of the adult population wake up with a dry mouth in the morning. They're more likely to be tired, for example, more likely to snore, more likely to have obstructive sleep apnea. And since 1988, it has been known that the oxygen uptake in the blood, the PO2, which is the pressure of oxygen in the blood, it increases by 10% with nasal breathing. That's huge. And if you do physical exercise with your mouth closed, carbon dioxide increases in the blood and carbon dioxide is, is a key for red blood cells to release oxygen to working muscles. So recovery is better. Nose is helping to protect the upper airways and the lower airways, so less trauma. Nitric oxide that you spoke about, it's produced in the paranasal sinuses and possibly the nasal cavity. And when we breathe through the nose, we carry this nitric oxide into the lungs. 
And the work it does in the lungs is amazing. It's a bronchodilator. It helps open up the airways. It's a vasodilator. It helps open up the blood vessels in the lungs so that air, so gas, oxygen can transfer from the lungs into the blood. It also helps to redistribute the blood throughout the lungs. Nitric oxide is antiviral. It's antibacterial. And there are even sprays now on the market that have been proven to reduce the severity of COVID um, that are harnessing nasal sorry, harnessing nitric oxide. Now, our nose is the first point of defense for any air that we are breathing or taking into the body. And yet there has been no information put out there about asking people to switch from mouth to nose breathing. In a hot environment, it doesn't make sense to breathe out through your mouth because there's a 42% greater water loss. So your nose is moistening and warming the air coming into the body, but it's also recovering heat and moisture on the exhalation. You're less dehydrated when you breathe out through your nose. When you breathe in and out through your nose, your breathing is slowed down. And also when you breathe in and out through your nose, you're better able to engage the diaphragm breathing muscle. Slow breathing and low breathing is very important for the emotions because if you think about how we breathe when we get stressed and typically it's faster breathing and upper chest breathing and you know somebody coming in with faster breathing and upper chest breathing and a regular breathing this can be their breathing pattern all the time i you know i'm i continuously work with people with anxiety and panic disorder as with asthma and sleep issues and i just look at breathing and you look at what you see in front of you you know person coming in it's not just that they are breathing fast and hard when there's a difficult situation the problem is they are breathing fast and hard all the time and then they come across a difficult situation well they're just pushed into symptoms so we sometimes have to get the everyday stuff right and nose breathing is the basic foundation it starts with nose breathing then we practice breathing light because there's an idea out there that the more air you breathe the better it is for you and this was kind of a, a pivotal moment for me because I used to always have cold hands and cold feet, always throughout my teenage years and into my early 20s. And when I started, when I just came across that article, I started practicing breathing less air. And all I was doing was, well, first of all, my nose was stuffy. So I opened it up using the nose unblocking exercise. And then I put one hand on my chest and one hand just above my navel. And I started just gently slowing down the speed of my breathing taking a very soft breath in through my nose and a really, really relaxed and a slow, gentle breath out to take about 30% less air into my body. And by doing so, I increased carbon dioxide in the blood. And I, I knew that because I felt air hunger. So air hunger signifies that carbon dioxide is increased in the blood. And as carbon dioxide increases in your blood, your blood vessels open up. So I felt warmth coming into my hands and I, you know, this was a rev revelation because, you know, we have 70,000 miles of blood vessels throughout the body. And if we are breathing hard, our blood vessels constrict. And I'll also give you another example. I was doing a finals exam in university and I was anxious going in because already I was in that fight or fight hyper arousal anyway, faster upper chest breathing. I took a walk for about three minutes before going into the exam hall or maybe five minutes. I walked down up along the football fields and I wanted to just clear my head or what I thought I would be clearing my head before I went into the exam. I took full big breaths because that's what I thought. That's what I had read or that's what I was hearing. These full big breaths. 
And I did that for two to three minutes because I guess, well, if a full big breath helps you, why not do it for two to three minutes? It's going to help me even more. And I walked into the exam hall spaced out. Now, here's an idea of the, the misinterpretation of breathing exercises, just as I misinterpreted it back then. And I was to sit a three-hour exam and I was lightheaded, I was spaced out, and it's, it's not an ideal <laughs> recipe. And this is where we have to get a better understanding out there about breathing, because it's not about taking that full big breath. It's you have to be very careful of the instruction you give to students. And I would also say to students, you know, the information is very easy, the right information. And the reason that I put in the science, Beverly, is because there has been too much woo woo for too many decades. And I don't want any woo woo. You know, the problem is that we have this left of field, which is all about woo woo. And we have this right of field is so much science. We need to be in the middle. Mm. And that's why you'll see there's a, one of the headings is breathing for the people. And really that's where it's at. Yeah. Not left of field, not right of field, but for the everyday normal person to be able to bring it into their way of life. And if they want, the science is there you get access to PubMed anyway. You can just check yeah. out every reference, every article, wherever possible. We have to back it up because otherwise it's not going to be taken seriously. Yeah. You know, I can't just say to somebody, do this and it's going to make this effect. No, of course. Now, sometimes science hasn't caught up. Like, for example, the nose unblocking exercise, we know it works. There has been very few studies on it. And one study, I did a pilot study back in 2013 with 26 patients with chronic asthma and rhinosinusitis. It was published as an abstract. It showed a reduction of nasal symptoms of 70% at three-month follow-up. 70% reduction of nasal symptoms across the nasal obstruction symptom evaluation, the sinonasal outcome test, and the visual analog scale. Great results. Nobody was interested. And the reason being is because if you teach somebody and tell them the importance of breathing through the nose and you teach them breathing exercise to gently unblock their nose, you don't make money out of it. That's, yeah. that's the reality of it. So it's just a pity that it's oftentimes that it's very much commercially driven. And as a result, like millions of children are going around with their mouths open unnecessarily. Millions of children with asthma, millions of children with ADHD. You know, they're instead of, let's look at their sleep and there is a link there if a child has poor sleep even if they are snoring it can increase the risk of adhd look at the kids with autism how many of these children are chronic mouth breeders and i know working with some kids with the full spectrum of autism is very difficult and i haven't been able to work with some of the kids but in a few kids that we did work with we've seen good results with their sleep and it's really important you know that's that's where it's at yeah um and i agree with you it's all about the money and like with the nitric oxide i know they're doing um more studies in the states with covid and the effects of using nitric oxide and i'm probably like you i was blown away that the world health organization hasn't done anything you know it, they could be getting everybody people like you to just 
share the, your videos. You've got so many videos online teaching people how to breathe properly. And what I like about your book, The Atomic Focus, you've got about 14 exercises that people can do in their daily life. So you bring it in your life. You've got to walk to the bathroom. You've got to walk to the computer. You've got to walk and start cooking your food or you're going out in nature or picking up the kids or you're shopping. They can be doing those nose holes and you, you've given some amazing exercises. But, you know, it's really disappointing when the World Health Authority don't get on board and advertise and help, you know. Why do you think that is? Yeah, but, all money or? but I understand it. I understand it as yeah. well. You know, if you think of, um, for example, in Ireland, to be a medical doctor, academically you have to be the top of the top now for number one is there a flaw in that in other words is it solely academic academia that we want to have yeah. um looking after people's health number two there's a lot of pressures that doctors when they're doing research that they are doing research that's is seemingly cutting a cutting edge and technologically and scientifically advanced and what medical doctor doing research is going to look at breathing, honestly? Because a medical doctor who looks at breathing is probably going to not going to be taken seriously. And that's the problem. And I think that's what has really held it back. Um, that there's nothing attractive. There's nothing to enhance or to entice a medical doctor to engage. Now, there have been some tremendous medical doctors like I'll give you one, Dr. James Barkley from New Zealand, who is an ear, nose and throat consultant. He's been talking about the importance of restoring nasal breathing and the benefits of breathing through the nose for decades. But we have also, we have doctors with, our, with ourselves and some of our instructors, Dr. Carlos O'Connor, um, an ear, nose and throat doctor from Madrid. I wrote a paper with him back. It was published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine back in January of this year on breathing and the phenotypes of sleep apnea. Like, even if we just look at sleep apnea, this is a really difficult condition. It's affecting about 30% of the male population, probably more, and it does affect us as we get older. Of course, it affects females, but less so. But 9% of females less than 50 years of age and about 30% about of females post-menopause. So post-menopausal women are three times more likely to have sleep disorder breathing than younger women. The CPAP machine is the gold standard of treatment. Yeah. This is a mask that you wear, either a nasal cannula or a full face mask. But the problem is compliance. People are not able to, many people are not able to tolerate it. And I think one stat is that 50% of people give it up after about six weeks. Now, here you have a, a sleep disorder, which is contributing to fatigue, cardiovascular issues, diabetes, dementia, cancer. And the solution is not working because 50% of the population diagnosed with sleep apnea are not able to tolerate the condition. But the other aspect is, it's men that mainly have sleep apnea. We don't tend to go to our medical doctors very often, but we go to our dentist. And I wrote in one book that I said, it's the dentist that should be spotting and identifying the risk factors for sleep apnea. A dentist is looking into the mouth the dentist can see when the throat is traumatized. The dentist can see if the tongue is scalloped. The dentist can identify if there's a high upper palate, if the jaws are set back. 
the dentist can see all of the risk factors for sleep apnea from an anatomical point of view. And the dentist then can point to the patients and say, listen, you have some characteristics here that could suggest you have a sleep problem. Will you go and get it checked out? Because this millions of men going into their dentists and coming back out, there's not a word, but yet the dentist is the professional to be able to spot this. And the men are not going to their medical doctor until something is, is really wrong. I haven't been to a medical doctor once in 20 years. That's one time when I ran, I have a cottage and I, the doorway is quite low and I bust my head going through it. That was the only time I've been to a medical doctor in the last 20 years. I'm not alone. So there is a culture that, again, you know, I think we have to. And I like, yeah, I don't like I don't always have the answer for it, but there's I think children breathing has been overlooked. Yeah. And with the general population, breathing has been overlooked. And um, like you said, I think I heard in one of your podcasts, you mentioned about children having tonsillectomy, adenoidectomy, and then there's yeah. no follow up. They've gone in yes. because they've over breathing. Um, yeah. When you talk about the men, it's like the book, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Women are bladderers, um, men keep it inside. And a colleague of mine, um, Malcolm McLean, He'd split up with his wife, you know, he was an overachiever and working long hours away a lot. So he decided to give up his business because the wife had nagged him for years because he'd made so much money. And when he did, she said, oh, great, I'm looking forward to the money. And by the way, I'm leaving you. So he had, <laughs> he had six months by himself. He, said he lived in a caravan and he just had a piece of paper on the table when he knew what he wanted to do, he'd write on it. And he came up with the idea because he spoke to a lot of men and men don't talk, but he discovered so many men suffer with depression. And he thought, what do men have in common? They'll all go and watch sports. So he started up a Man United football club where men could go. And before you knew it, everybody was like, you know, you don't need a counselor because they were all supporting each other and talking about it. So he's written quite a few books too help men you know discover things so i'm going to send him all your links but going back um to the medical profession a local doctor where i'm staying at the moment my friend told him i was teaching meditation so he approached me and then i told him about your breathing because i knew he's having problems sleeping and i said about the asthma and he said oh you probably got him misdiagnosed and um <laughs> I knew straight away it was pointless saying anything to him about it. And um, another lady um, that I was friendly with got diagnosed with um, diabetes, like late 30s. And I hadn't seen her properly, only to say hi. And, you know, and she was telling me that someone nearly killed her because um, they were telling her to do breathing exercises and give up their medication. And I said, look, you really have to do your research and only go with someone who's properly trained and experienced. So you mentioned experience. And, you know, the people shouldn't be saying giving up any sort of medication. You just got to do everything slowly and listen within, listen to your body. And um, I know from all your papers and your studies, 
that you show that um, just having good nasal practice can help um, relieve lots of physical ailments. And as you know, um, Mr. Slough years ago was working as a choral master and doing work with um, the singers and then went on to, he got into the Pomeria Hospital. But then all his work left with him once he died. And I'm just keeping my fingers and toes crossed, Patrick, that your work doesn't die. And like I said earlier, I think now is the time for change. And I really think since I've been in Australia, people, young people, you know, there's top nutritionists and all sorts of people in various health backgrounds, young and dynamic and going out there and doing videos and telling the world. So it's really good. Um, yeah, no, thanks very much. Sorry about there's dogs and we have three dogs here and they're creating a little bit of a, they're quietening down there. So just in case you heard them, I had to put everything on mute. Yeah. Um, yeah, just, like it's, I think I suppose, Beverly, not to cut across you, but Slough's work, very, very important, but he didn't have the benefit of, um, or the, the benefit wasn't there in terms of information technology. Yeah. And, you know, we've been able to scale it now with so many different instructors and that's been tremendous. And I'm not the only one doing it. Like there's many people occupying the same space as me. And, you know, and it's, it's just there has been a pivotal moment in terms of breath awareness. James Nestor's book as well come out and yeah. pretty much, you know, agreeing with what we've been saying with, for 20 years, you know, and he's been able to get that into a bestseller. So that's yeah. been tremendous because his book has done more awareness for breathing than we have done, than we have been able to do. So, and it has lifted has lifted the whole concept of the breath and I would say to anybody that I agree with your take with that person with type 1 diabetes never to change medication but there is a role for breathing in type 1 and the reason being is because you can influence oxygen delivery you can influence blood circulation you can also influence the autonomic nervous system because with type 1 diabetes it can be a condition where there's an imbalance in the autonomic nervous system and increase sympathetic drive and reduce parasympathetic drive. And let's bring a little bit of balance there and improve the sensitivity of the barrel reflex. But also people with diabetes can be tired. Their sleep is impacted. Their lung function is impacted. So there's definitely a role for breathing as with epilepsy, as with people with lower back pain, as with women with um, PMS in terms of, and, you know, even dysphoria that, like there's really and women's breathing has been different to men's breathing for 106 years this has been known but yet many women younger women going through the monthly cycle are not um they're not aware that the hormonal changes impact your breathing and post ovulation middle luteal phase that progesterone is increasing estrogen increases breathing is stimulated carbon dioxide levels can drop by as much as 25 percent and this can generate fatigue anxiety panic um, increased pain perception, reduced pain thresholds, and that information didn't get out there. So, you know, there is definitely a role, but I would agree, um, do your research. And that's what the benefit of it now, because information is readily accessible. I know we could talk for hours and I've still got loads of questions, but um, a lot of people have asked me to ask you um, 
when I'm working with a big group with ladies who've had a mastectomy and then they decide in whether they have reconstruction and they want to know is there any breathing exercises that you would recommend for them is it good um, yeah so you talking about women and I've always had cold hands and cold feet and loads of women in general it's like a joke with all my friends you know we use our male partners as our hot water bottles in the night and yes, I do yeah. practice the nasal breathing but I've still got cold hands and feet so I don't know if it's just a woman's thing and um, well there's one way to find out and that's when you're sitting in the comfort of your own your own home and nice and relaxed deliberately breathe less air Okay. And do it by simply slowing down the breath in, almost at taking in hardly any air into your nose. Can you breathe in so smooth that the fine hairs within the nostrils do not move and have a very relaxed and a prolonged and gentle exhalation and do that for three or four minutes, but you need to feel air hunger. Yeah. So make sure you feel that air hunger and just then check if you are able to influence the temperature of your hands. Also check saliva in the mouth. Are you activating the body's relaxation response? I think anybody who's after having surgery because of the trauma and also because of the anesthetic, breathing can be dysfunctional. Um, use, we use a simple breath hold time called the bolt score or the control pause. And you're sitting down and just measure your breath hold time. So you take a normal breath in and out through your nose, you pinch your nose and you hold your breath and time it in seconds until you feel the first definite desire to breathe. And then let go and resume breathing with normal breathing. If your breath hold time is less than 25 seconds, it signifies that your breathing has got room for improvement. And we are seeing some people with breath hold time. Tomorrow I have three students with long COVID and severe asthma, breath hold times of three and four seconds. Wow. These people can't get out of bed. Uh, these people wow. can't, can hardly do any sort of physical exercise because the lower your breath hold time, the faster and harder you breathe. So if a person's breath hold time is 25 seconds towards 40 seconds, brilliant. They're in a good spot. Yeah. But if their breath hold time is less than 25 seconds, there's room for improvement because a short breath hold time is faster breathing upper chest breathing. And as I said earlier on, if you're breathing faster in upper chest, your brain is interpreting that the body is under stress and that not the brain, not that the brain is necessarily interpreting that the body is under stress, but that the body is under trash. And the brain then is going to put into that fight or flight response. Um, I would typically not do long breath holds or major stress or exercises with your group okay. that you spoke about. I would be doing light breathing, slow breathing and low breathing, nose breathing, getting the mouth closed during sleep, going for walks with the mouth closed and, you know, it, it, without stress or exercises. I don't believe in in terms of stressing the body, there's a point. Yes, we do stress or exercises with athletes to cause adaptations. I do stress or exercise with people with asthma. And I do gentle stress or exercise with people with anxiety and panic disorder because I, gen I create a feeling, I have them create a feeling of air hunger, but I need them to surrender to the feeling of air hunger so that they're not going to react to the feeling of suffocation because the feeling of suffocation can often drive them into symptoms. So what I, we do is we give them a mini dose of suffocation, but it's tailored. Mm. So we help them that way. So, you know, it's 
like you can never go wrong with nose breathing, light breathing, slow breathing and low breathing. And it's never about forcing the breath into place. It's just kind of working with it. And a lot of people have told me when they do the box breathing, they yes. inhale, hold, exhale, and then they gasp in for breath. They can't hold after the exhale. Yeah, and the reason being is because their bolt score is too low. So four seconds is too much for this group. Like it's okay. like when I'm working with the group tomorrow, um, long COVID and their bolt scores yeah. is down at four seconds there's no way on earth they could be able to do box breathing for four seconds. The only exercise that I'm going to mainly do with this group tomorrow is relaxation, nose breathing and small breath toes for two seconds each. So the exercise that we do is take a normal breath in and out through the nose, pinch the nose and hold one, two, let go, breathe normally for 10 seconds and then breathe in through the nose and out through the nose and hold one, two, we do that exercise for maybe five minutes, 10 minutes. Now with long COVID, I'm only going to do it for two minutes every hour because their autonomic nervous system can be so taxed. And I don't want to, I don't want to overdo it to the point that I push them back into symptoms. And this is really, it. watch this condition. This is going to, this is a big, big problem. This yeah. is, this is worse than chronic fatigue and ME and, you know, going very very gentle making sure that after they've they've finished with the exercises that they've got plenty of room that if they want to do them again but not actually doing it so not pushing them to the point that they've, they've we've exhausted their their energy um so yeah with with box breathing and this is again an issue you know you've got somebody with very poor breathing and you've got somebody with good breathing you give them box breathing in two, three, four, hold two, three, four, out two, obviously timed two seconds. The person with poor breathing is not going to be able to do it. They're running out of air. They're feeling suffocated, but they could do it maybe for one second or for even two seconds. So to breathe in two, hold two, out two, hold two. But I would say do small breath tools, breathing recovery instead. And different exercises to suit different people. And is there a difference between when you inhale, hold your breath, and to exhaling to hold your breath? Because I know most of the time you do the breath holds after and pinch your nose after the exhale. Is there yeah. a reason for that? Yeah, it seems to be like, normally when we get stressed, we breathe in and hold the breath. Okay. So that may be one reason why we exhale and hold the breath. But the main reason that we do exhale and hold the breath is because it is a stronger effect in terms of um, carbon dioxide increasing in the blood, which can stimulate the vagus nerve. Also, when we exhale and hold, nitric oxide pools inside the nose. So when we let go, then we have to breathe in. So we carry that nitric oxide into the lungs. And also as a measurement, we get a more consistent value when we exhale and hold the breath and possibly also during the exhalation, the diaphragm has moved back up. So it's more in a relaxed position. Uh, so there's a number of reasons for it. Inhaling, holding the breath can be useful in terms of allowing oxygen transfer from the lungs to the blood. So there's, yeah, it's different, different reasons. And we do some inhale holds too, um, but mainly it's exhale. Okay. And just quickly, wearing the mask, a few people have said they can't nose breathe at all. They almost like, heavily mouth breathing yeah but that's the problem again 
I put a video out on YouTube back six months ago, how to breathe while wearing a mask. Yeah. You know, you're wearing a mask, it's pulling carbon dioxide, it's generating a feeling of suffocation. How do people normally react to the feeling of suffocation? Mouth breathing, fast breathing. It's putting them into a fight or flight response. Wearing the mask is going to generate anxiety for some groups of people. People with poor breathing, people with anxiety, people with panic disorder, people with ADHD. It's very important that if you have suffocation or a feeling of suffocation, don't breathe mouth fast and shallow because you're wasting so much air to dead space. Always remember, nose slow and low. So while wearing the mask, only breathe in and out through your nose. The air hunger diminishes this. In actual fact, wearing the mask could be the best thing ever if you continue nasal breathing. Great. Thank you so much. You, sure, you're welcome. It's been really wonderful, and I know which will be the best way for people to contact you. Uh, we've got a couple of websites. Utakoclinic.com is specifically for sleep issues, respiratory okay. issues, and anxiety. And oxygenadvantage.com is more performance-based. Great. And um, I'll put it in the written blurb to go with this. And um, I'm excited to hear that you're writing another book already. And yes, <laughs> able to give us a little hint or. Yeah, it's 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 on yoga breathing. Um, oh. I feel that. Yoga has an enormous potential way beyond what's happening at the moment. If yoga instructors understood the power of the breath and i don't mean to say this by criticizing it or anything like that but if in terms of measuring breathing in terms of being able to tailor breathing exercises to specific complaints and giving people the tools as well of taking the breathing off the mat into their everyday life you know if if breathing is really going to to go where it needs to go we need a large group of people behind it. Yoga has the potential to do it. And at the moment, yoga instructors, I just feel that they are not, they are not providing the information that they could really do it. They could really change lives here. Fantastic. That's where I learned my first um, alternative nasal breathing yes. through a yoga class. And I love, there's so many different styles of yoga, but I tend to be drawn to Kundalini and Yoga Nidra and the different ones that use various forms of breathing. So, yes. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. That's brilliant. But the thing is, Beverly, you know, when you're telling somebody to take in a breath, it's not just about focusing on the timing of the breathing. We also need to look at the volume. Yeah. And often that's overlooked. And for some advanced students of yoga, they're going to have a long breath all the time. But you've got people coming in off the street and they're breathless and they have anxiety. They're not going to do these. Mm -hmm. So breathing needs to be measured and needs to be tailored. And like this is where I've made mistakes. Yeah. You know, and I think of a yoga instructor, new breathing from what, what I've seen over the years, they can easily tweak their practice and it, it could be amazing. People coming in with asthma and they're, they're provided with the tools to greatly help their condition. People coming in with sleep issues, mental health issues, women. Like I think yoga is frequently is frequented more by women than men. I'm not sure of <clears throat> this, this statistic. Look at women with PMS, you know, yeah. and she, the women with the, 
greatest symptoms of PMS have increased sensitivity to carbon dioxide and the breathing exercise could be tweaked to address that. Yeah, great. And women also influence their children. They'll do anything yes. for the children. Yeah. So if you can teach the women, they're more likely to teach their kids as well. That's yeah, there's no doubt. Um, teach the parents and you'll get the next generation. Yeah. Thank you very much and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks very much, Beverly.